Pray with me, if you will. Father, we're grateful today for this privilege of gathering here to worship you and to lift up the name of Jesus. We thank you for your grace to us that no need or concern is too great for you or too small for you, but that you bless us in every way. So I pray now that we would be able to listen well to your word as we look to Jesus as the model for servanthood, that we would be reminded of what true servanthood is and be able to evaluate our own lives in light of who Jesus is and the instruction that you've given us in your word. And we pray, Father, that you would be honored by what's said and done here in these next few minutes and that as your people, we would be found faithful as we put these truths into practice in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. Our text today is verse 24 through 30. Now, if you've been following along in the gospel of Luke, uh, you might notice that we are moving past the passage of Scripture on the Lord's Supper. Uh, It's not because we're not going to study it together, but we're going to do it a little bit later when we observe and celebrate the Lord's Supper together in the coming weeks. And we're going to move today to Luke chapter 22 and verse 24 to 30 in a message entitled, The Greatest Among You. The Greatest Among You. The acronym of GOAT is commonly used in sports talk. It stands, of course, for the greatest of all time. The term is thought to have originated in 1992. Muhammad Ali's wife, Lonnie Ali, incorporated a company called GOAT Incorporated that held all of the assets of Ali's image. Later in 2000, LL Cool J released an album by the name of Goat that actually went platinum and reached number one in the United States, which served to further popularize the term in our culture. And because it's so prominent in sports, it's also a term that's begun to be used in other areas of life to discuss and determine who in fact is the greatest of all time in whatever area it is that they're representing. And as you might imagine, people often do not agree with who the goats are in their particular area, and it creates a lot of controversy and a lot of back and forth. Well, unfortunately, we're going to learn in our passage of Scripture today about a time when the disciples were having a similar debate about who should be considered the greatest. Jesus then gave them instruction on how to identify who the greatest is in the kingdom of God. And we're going to learn from it some principles of how we can identify our own lives as to whether or not they're in line with who Jesus would want us to be. So I begin reading here in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, Jesus did, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It's not like to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one on me, 
so that you may eat and drink in my table in the kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I want you to put yourself in this scene just for a moment. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. And what are his disciples arguing about? Who among them was the greatest? Jesus, in response, makes it clear that the one who is the greatest is the one who serves. And I believe it will do us well to understand what it means to serve God in his kingdom. The word serves here means one who serves in a lowly way. One who submits themselves to serve God and to serve others. Ulrich Zwingli, who was the father of the Swiss Reformation, who lived around the 15th and the 16th century, said, You are a tool in the hands of God. He demands your service, not your rest. Yet how fortunate you are that he lets you take part in his work. So can we just collectively say that we've been graced with the privilege of serving God? That this is who we are in Jesus? So if we've been graced with the privilege of serving God, should we not understand what it means to do that and how we're to serve him? So we're going to ask and answer this question in these next few moments that we have together. Who is the greatest among you? We're going to find our answer in these words from Jesus. First of all, the greatest among you is the one who serves in humility. You might recall that Jesus was prophesied as the Messiah, and when he was prophesied as the Messiah, it was said that he would come as the servant of the Lord. It was the prophet Isaiah, nearly 700 years before Jesus was born, before his incarnation, and it was in that time that he said the words of God in Isaiah 42 and verse 1, this is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And now here is Jesus among his disciples teaching about what it means to be a servant. And servanthood is exercised in a spirit of humility. Jesus said in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. The Jews, you see, would have been familiar with the Gentile model of authority. After all, ancient Near Eastern kings had long claimed to be gods, and yet they ruled as tyrants. Greek rulers had the same posture. Jewish people would have seen the Roman emperor and the agents who served him the same way. And the leaders of that day, they wanted to get credit for what they had done. Does that sound familiar? Very similar today, people who are of power and prominence and prestige, they present themselves in a way that they get the credit for whatever it is that they think they have done. And these people were rewarded for their prominence and their power. Uh, The word that is used here is said to have been among the most common half-dozen epithets of rulers and leaders that occurred in Greek inscriptions during the Roman Empire of that time. They would actually uh, leave as what they thought was their legacy, the fact that they were benefactors. Benefactors identified a widespread class of individuals who celebrated themselves. We live in an age where people celebrate 
themselves. But here's what the Lord Jesus says. It should not be that way among you. That's not how it's supposed to be. We don't celebrate ourselves. We celebrate the Lord. The Lord Jesus embodied humility, and he also modeled it. The account of the Lord's Supper and what took place that night is given some insight by John in his gospel in chapter 13. John recounts the Lord's Supper on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and he says that during that time, Jesus got up from supper, he girded himself with a towel, he took a basin of water, and he washed the disciples' feet. I think that took place between the time of their dispute and then before Jesus taught this lesson that's recorded here in Luke. In John chapter 13 and verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Now, when it was time for supper, verse 2, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. And Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. And next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and then to dry them with a towel that was tied around him. Jesus embodied and modeled servanthood. And the servanthood that Jesus draws us toward is a servanthood that is motivated by love. I am captured by these words here where it says in John 13 that he loved them to the end because it means that he will love us to the end as well. That this is not a momentary love. This is not a temporary love. This is not a conditional love. This is a love that goes with us from now all the way through eternity. And it's a love from which we cannot be separated no matter what it is that comes our way in this life. And it's with that kind of love that Jesus was motivated to serve, and it's with that kind of love that we ought to be motivated to serve as well. And Jesus assumed the form of a servant, and he humbled himself in doing so. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 says that he emptied himself and took on the likeness of humanity. And then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. I like the way Tim Keller put it. He said, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. Keller says it undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone And yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. You understand the heart of humility is the realization in your life that who you are is who you are in Christ and you have nothing to prove to anybody. Nothing. You only are to be faithful in that humble service to God. Servanthood puts other people first. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He deserved to be served. Was this not the one who had been with the Father from eternity past? Was this not the one who spoke creation into being? 
Was this not the one who was seated in the glory of heaven before he came to the humble circumstances of this earth? And yet he was willing to leave that space in heaven and come to earth in a sin-fallen world so that we might be reconciled to God. And he was the one that deserved to be served, but because he loved us, he came to serve us. One pastor noted that the culture teaches us to put ourselves first, but the irony of it is that those who focus the most on themselves are the most unhappy people. Have you noticed that the more people focus on themselves, the more unhappy they become? Because they get wrapped up in what they are or what they aren't or what they need or what they have. And it's all self-focused and it's a quite depressing experience when it's all about us. Romans 12 and verse 10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. So I believe that part of servanthood is adding value to other people. And what I mean by that is that We should seek each day to be a blessing to other people and not a burden. We should seek to encourage and not discourage. We should seek to bring joy and not despair uh, to people's lives. And if we're thinking in that way and we're thinking about through our vocations and our families and in our communities and in the activities that we take part in, how can I be a blessing to somebody else? It changes everything because the question is not what am I going to get out of this? But what can I give to be a blessing to someone else? I read an article that was written several years ago entitled Servant Leadership, A Path to High Performance. The writer was Edward Hess. And it was interesting because what he was trying to do was basically test a theory. And his theory was that people who serve other people and value service to other people are actually more successful than people that are self-focused and are trying to get what they want out of something. And what he did was he, he studied some very high-performing organizations, organizations like Chick-fil-A and UPS and others that have been successful in whatever their particular industry is. And what he discovered is among the people who are the highest in the leadership, they value service to others, and they see their servanthood as a responsibility or a stewardship And that changes everything about how they run the organization. And he says as a result of that, they experience successes that other people would look at and say, there's no way you could do that. There's no way you could experience that success. And yet they do because they want to add value to other people. Servanthood is the model for leadership. And obviously Jesus is the one who adds the eternal value. Everything we do is temporary uh, other than what we do for him, which is eternal. But the concept of greatness is questioned here in verse 27. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? And he gives the obvious answer. It's the one at the table. But I'm among you as one who serves. So think about it this way. If you're invited to an important event and there are people there that are, let's just call them somebody. They're somebody. They're not bringing you the salad. They're not bringing you the tea. They're sitting at the table having somebody serve them. So Jesus is just speaking about a practical matter here. You would think that those people were the greatest. But Jesus said, I'm going to tell you something a little different here. I'm the one who serves. 
And then he goes on to give us some instruction about what that means. And the word for greater could be translated as substantive, a great one, versus a comparative of greater. So what he's saying is, the world would answer, the honored guest at the banquet is certainly greater than the one who serves them. However, in the kingdom, Jesus is proclaiming, I am the one among you who serves. And that denotes a posture that is both personal and relational. And what Jesus is saying is, you want a model for leadership? Here I am. It was him embodied on display. And he was about to give the ultimate act of service when he gave his life on the cross. So if we want to embody servant leadership, we need to follow Jesus. We need to live as Jesus lived. We need to serve as Jesus served. And that should be the spirit of our church, an attitude of servanthood and adding value and blessing and loving and encouraging. Because the greatest among you is the one who serves in humility. Who is the greatest among you? Secondly, the greatest among you is the one who serves even when it's difficult. Now we move to verse 28, and we learn that there is a high cost to servanthood. You are those who stood by me in my trials. Now I think at this point Judas has has departed. Uh, Judas Iscariot, one of the original 12 disciples, had joined Jesus, you remember, in his three-year ministry and then ultimately betrayed him after the devil entered him. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus is speaking to the disciples who stood by him in his trials. Now admittedly, this is a curious verse to me. And the reason it's curious is, We know that Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and then he eventually went through the awful trial in the Garden of Gethsemane in the recognition of the suffering that he was about to endure, followed by his trial and his crucifixion. But the disciples were not standing with Jesus in either one of those. He had not chosen them to begin with yet in that circumstance. And then they fled and deserted him in his last hours. So what is Jesus saying in this verse? I think he's referring to the trials or the temptations that they went through with him in his earthly ministry. And I think it has a broader application to us as we endure difficulty as his disciples today for the sake of his name. So if the greatest among you is the one who serves when it is difficult, then we have to understand what the biblical perspective of trials and difficulties and suffering is really is. And what we learn is that trials are to be expected. Whoever told you that the Christian life was going to be easy, and it was going to be peaceful, and it was going to be smooth sailing, lied to you. They just told you a story. It's not true. You know why it's not true? It's not true because we live in a sin-fallen world. We struggle with our own sin. We're a broken and a needy people. We live in a time when the darkness is growing even deeper and we've not been promised an easy time in the Christian life. My friend Zane Pratt with the International Mission Board said that suffering is normal in this fallen world. And by the way, he served for years in Central Asia, so he knows quite well from the mission field experience. He said, Western culture, on the other hand, has so glorified the values of safety, comfort, and convenience that anything less is now regarded as something akin to a human rights violation. Zane says the idea that people have a right to a secure, healthy life is an attitude that has, unfortunately, bled over into the church. 
whereas the Bible regards suffering as normal. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12 and 13 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you to test you as if something unusual is happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. So not only are trials to be expected, but you know what else? Trials reveal a lot about us. They say as much about us as they do about the particular situation. There are Christians who will serve God as long as it's easy and as long as they get their way and as long as it's smooth and as long as there's no opposition and as long as things are going relatively well, they're happy. But when it gets hard, when it gets difficult, how does our faithfulness stand the test? Even though the disciples stood with Jesus to that point, he knew that they were going to forsake him and flee for their lives. And he knew that he was going to face this trial alone. John 16 and verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone because my Father is with me. Did you know that no matter how difficult the trial is or how hard the circumstance is, even when Judas left and betrayed Jesus, he was relying on his relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit and the eternal relationship, the communion that they had. And there's an application for us in that as well. Ultimately, our stability, our security, and our peace is in our relationship with God. After his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus specifically foretold what would happen to Peter later on. John 21 and verse 18 and 19, he said, I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. What a retirement plan. What a word from Jesus. Eusebius, a church historian, wrote of this very passage in his work, Ecclesiastical History. He said, Peter seems to have preached in Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and Asia to the Jews of the dispersion. And at least at last, having come to Rome, he was crucified head downward. For so he himself had asked to suffer. Tradition indicates that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome during one of Nero's persecutions. And when Jesus said, when you were young, you went and did whatever you wanted to do. But when you're old, you're going to be led by the hand. And then he said to Peter, follow me. He didn't say run away. He said, follow me. So when we get in the midst of trials, what it does for us is it, it reveals our faith. And it also builds our faith. It reveals our faith because it says in who it is that we're trusting And it builds our faith because it grows our character. The Bible says that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. So what we want to do is not ask the question in the moment, why me? We are to ask the question in the moment, what now? 
God, how can you grow my life and my faith and help me to stand firm when it's difficult? Just this morning, I read a brief article about 17 Christian missionary aid workers in Haiti that have been kidnapped. Friends, that's a trial. I don't know what the outcome will be. I didn't read the later news, but it just come out. And we need to pray specifically for them. And then we also need to wake up and realize that Christianity is not a consumer religion. It is not about our convenience. It is not about how easy it is for us. Listen, we are blessed with blessings beyond measure. The grace of God that sees us through is a grace that brings peace. It's a grace that brings purpose to our lives. But it's not promised that it's going to be easy. But what we bear now in this life is but for a little while. And what God is doing is he's teaching us to depend on him and to stand firm and to hang in there and to be faithful. Thomas Merton in his his work, Run to the Mountain, said, As soon as we know our dependence and our own nothingness, we begin by dying to live. And in this is our only hope, that knowing our nothingness, we come to learn from tribulation and then tribulation, instead of paralyzing us and beating us to death and despair, is necessary for us to learn how to live. And tribulation teaches us the truth. It teaches us that our philosophy in which everything is centered on ourselves is false and deadly because evil in it is inexplicable and increases more and more as we try to avoid it more and more. And I'll just translate what he's saying. Hey, friends, get over yourself. It's about him. It's not about us. It's about the glory of God and and in expressing the glory of God and in serving toward the glory of God. What it does is it builds us up in the faith. And we get to experience who God ultimately created us and saved us to be. Who's the greatest among you? Well, third, it says the greatest among you is the one who serves in faith. I want you to look at verse 29. He says, I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Faith expects responsibility from God in eternity. You understand we're not working toward an ethereal existence in eternity. We, we are headed toward that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. That's what we're headed toward. And in the meantime, we're preparing for that. And the word bestow or confer is the verb form of the word covenant. So as disciples of Jesus, we've been given an incredible privilege of taking part in his work and mission in the world. In the heart of this is the relationship of the Father and the Son and his disciples. And he's speaking here of the twelve, ruling with Christ and enthroned in glory. So faith is looking to the future of eternal fellowship with God. That's what I'm looking forward to. That, that's what I'm longing for. That's what the Apostle Paul was burdened by. Is that not why he said for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? He knew that he was called to live for Christ in the here and now. But there was a great gain that was coming. There, there was a blessing that was coming in the presence of God. Now, to remind you also that while it's not recorded in Scripture, tradition also tells us that the Apostle Paul 
was also killed for his faith. Lee Eklov said, it seems that Jesus pictured us all coming into that great upper room, fresh from meeting him in the air in our new immortal bodies, dressed in blood-breached white linen. He's speaking coming off of the description of the Lord's Supper and the understanding now in verse 29 of what's to come in the future. And Eklov said, before us is spread a vast bridal banquet, lavish and regal. The Lord, having prepared the place for us and us for the place, now invites us to recline around the table. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of the best foods. Then instead of taking his seat at the head of the table, the Lord Jesus lays aside his blood-dipped gleaming white robe and golden sash to dress as a servant, and he begins to wait on us, not just on that festive occasion, but forever after, because after all, that's his nature. So we are expecting something to come. You understand that faith sees the unseen. Faith believes in the moment of what's to come in the future. That's the very nature of faith. And without it, it's impossible for us to please God. And faith understands the importance of preparedness. I think one of the greatest challenges that we have in the West in the 21st century in the church is that the church is groggy, sleepy, and in many cases, spiritually lazy. I just read some disheartening statistics this past week about the rapid decline of just church attendance, not even faithfulness, but just showing up, like showing up's half of it, just participating. And it's talking about in the last 10 years, there has been a dramatic change in the United States of just basic participation. And what that reflects to me is that we're living in an age when people they're not ready. They're, they're not focused on the future. They're focused on now. They're not focused on serving. They're focused on self. And for us as the people of God who are here, who, who care, who are engaged, who are walking in faith, what it says to us is that we can't become complacent. We can't allow the lukewarmness of the age in which we live to draw us toward a life of complacency where our faith is less and less important. Because you understand, parents, whatever you do in moderation, your children are going to do in excess. So if you don't think the Lord is important, and you don't think serving Him and His kingdom is important, and you don't make it a priority to commit yourself to that covenant relationship with God, and you're not making it a priority to be in the Word and to be in prayer and to be a faithful steward and to share your faith and just the basics of what it means to be a Christian, how in the world do you think your kids are ever going to make their way in that? We've been given a sacred responsibility, and we want to use it well, and we want to serve in faith. Luke 12, in verse 35 and 36, says, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him, and it'll be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. 
Church, are you keeping your lamps burning in anticipation of and in preparedness for the return of the Lord? In closing, who's the greatest among you? The greatest among you is the one who serves. It's the one who serves. Now watch this contrast and I'm going to close. In the economy of the world, the ones who are served are perceived as being the greatest. They're the ones who are successful. In the economy of God, greatness is found in humble service to God and to others. Let me say that one more time. In the economy of the world, the ones who are served are perceived as being great and successful. In the economy of God, greatness is found in humble service to God and to others. I was thinking about verse 26 in particular, where he says, Whoever's greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. My heart is full and blessed today that we've been able to see four who are among the youngest who've recently come to faith in Christ and been baptized now today in believer's baptism. That's what I'm here for. What are you here for? That's what I pray for. What are you praying for? And you see, it's that kind of faith that holds the keys to the kingdom. And it's that kind of faith that we all have to come to Jesus with, regardless of what our age is. And it's that kind of faith that we need to live out our lives with. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we come toward a close of the service. As our heads are bowed and we're reflecting now on the word that we have heard, the teaching of Jesus in this moment, I'd ask you, first of all, have you ever humbled yourself in the sight of God, repented of your sins, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? If not, today could be the day that your life changes forever. Salvation is a gift, and like any gift, it has to be received, and it can only be received by faith, a childlike faith. So, Pastor, how can I take that step? If you'll admit to God that you're a sinner and you believe that God sent his son Jesus to live and to die and to now live again so that you could be forgiven and saved, if you'd be willing to simply ask God, based on the finished work of Jesus, to forgive you and save you, he'll hear that prayer of faith and he'll bring you into his eternal family. Today could be the day. I'd love to talk with you afterwards. If you have questions, I'd love to pray for you or with you. But I want to say now to my brothers and sisters in Christ, we've been called to a life of service to God and his kingdom. It's not easy. It's not without cost. But we're called to be faithful. Are you rejoicing today in a life of service to the king? Are you living your life in preparedness, in readiness for his return? If you're not, the Lord will help you in that. He'll help you if you ask him. 
God, we're grateful today for the privilege of being gathered together here with your people. Grateful for the opportunity to sing together and to rejoice in the gospel, to witness baptisms. What more joyous day could it be than we're seeing the work of your Holy Spirit in our midst in the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be good stewards of this life you've entrusted to us. And we want to be ready for the Lord's return. We want to be good servants. So Jesus, teach us what that means. If there are areas of our lives where we need to be shaped and sharpened and molded, that we would be as we surrender to you. And Father, that we would be a holy people, undefiled, ready to be used by you. And God, if there would even be one person here today or who hears this message later on who would trust in Christ as their Savior, we would rejoice with the angels in heaven. We give this time of closing response over to you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.